Um, I don't have a dramatic demonstration this morning. So no one's going to get electrocuted. There won't be any explosions. There, I didn't build an air cannon this week. Um, some of you probably are not that disappointed because you're like, wait, an air cannon was a possibility? So if you haven't ever pre- seen me preach before, I often have dramatic demonstrations, but you come with what God gives you. And what I have this morning is the word of God. And so we're going to get straight to it. Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, starting in verse 28. And while you're flipping there to it, it will come up on the screen eventually. But while you're flipping there, I want to give you some background before we start the passage. So Paul wrote this letter uh, because the believers in Galatia had a disagreement. You see, some of the believers thought that in order to become a Christian, you had to first convert to Judaism including, if you were a male, being circumcised. Now, this was a big problem. I mean, can you imagine what the altar calls were like in Galatia? Brothers, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, come to the altar and then... I mean, there's commitment to Christ, and then there's commitment to Christ. Can I get a witness from my brothers? And in this letter, Paul addresses that disagreement, circumcision versus uncircumcision. And what he realizes is that that the issue isn't about fulfilling the Jewish rituals. The issue at core is identity. The Galatians were having an identity crisis. That's the title of my message this morning, identity crisis. You see, At this point, Christianity was still a relatively new phenomenon. And so the Galatians weren't sure who they were. Were they Jews or were they Gentiles or were they something in between? Were they even doing this whole following Jesus thing correctly? I mean, there were no gospels. There was no daily devotional you could read. There weren't televangelists or podcasts or gospel music. Indeed, the term Christian was only a few years old when the Galatians came to faith. So were they doing it right? And the Gentile Christians were unsure. They were unsure if God would accept them unless they first converted to Judaism. And the Jews were struggling to understand their value before God if it wasn't confined to their traditional boundaries of circumcision and culture and diet. And basically, Paul's response to the Galatians is simple. He says, Galatians, you are all idiots. I'm not kidding. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you stupid Galatians. It's in the Bible. He says, you stupid Galatians. Now, your translation might not use the word stupid. It might use the word foolish. But foolish is just a polite way of saying stupid. So Paul is upset with the Galatians. He is upset because they have forgotten who they are. And so he proceeds to remind them in chapter 3, starting in verse 28. He writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. And so this morning, I want us to talk about identity. Because like the Galatians, I think we sometimes suffer from an identity crisis. We lose track of who we are. And when that happens, we need passages like this to remind us. And so we're going to unpack this passage, what it teaches us about our identity and how it influences our life in three areas, the three I's, our insecurities, our intimacy, and our impact. Three I's for identity. And so we're going to begin with the first one, insecurity. When we are unsure of who we are, we, ha- we can often struggle with insecurity, either because of criticism from others or because of self-doubt. And that insecurity can show itself in ugly ways. Maybe we are hypercritical of other people. Maybe we're hypercritical of ourselves. Maybe we are defensive. Maybe we are easily offended. Maybe we hide who we are for fear that people will find out. As Tracy Miles puts it, when you lose track of your identity, you can spend a lot of time wondering. Wondering who you really are. Wondering if you are worthy. Wondering if you are lovable. Wondering if you are beyond repair. Wondering if what someone did to hurt you stole your value. Wondering if you are a good enough person, spouse, mom, dad, employee, boss, sister, daughter, friend, servant. Wondering if you measure up in any area of life. And Paul leads off with one of the most excellent passages of scripture for answering these kinds of doubts. He writes, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Because even if you don't know who you are, sometimes it is enough to know who you are not. See, Paul tells you that who you are isn't determined by your ethnicity or how much money you make or what other people think of you. Who you are isn't limited by how you look or how well you speak or what school you went to because we are all one in Christ. And that is a profoundly liberating passage because if you struggle with feeling unlovely, Paul tells you that you can confidently say, that is not who I am. If someone tells you you are stupid, you can say to them, that is not who I am. If the enemy tries to tell you that you will never amount to much, that is not who I am. 
If someone tries to tell you that you don't deserve to be where you are, that is not who I am. If you think you are not a good enough son or daughter or employee or student or father or mother, that is not Amen. Someone needs to praise God who is the great I am. Because in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Now, we need to recognize that Paul has organized these characteristics in a very specific way. He is always pairing a more desirable group with a less desirable group. So the Jews thought they were better than the Greeks. They thought they were more acceptable to God. And free people definitely thought they were better than slaves. And in Roman society, men had certain powers and privileges over women. And Paul is saying that none of these things, good or bad, determines who you are. And that's important because there is a temptation here. And that temptation is only to read half the passage. To say, well, Paul says I'm not poor, so that must mean I'm rich. Paul says I'm not fat, so that must mean I'm skinny. Paul says I'm not stupid, so that must mean I'm a genius. And we can chuckle about that, but that is exactly the way the world expects us to fight insecurity. It's a strategy. For every doubt or negative thought, you come up with a positive thought or truth to counter the negative thought. And there are benefits to that strategy. If you are constantly hearing false negative criticism, it is important to affirm the truth. But taken to the extreme, this strategy can lead to a problem. And to illustrate this problem, I want you to consider the following quote uh, from a Christian author who will remain nameless because I'm going to make him look bad. So this author suggests that every day we all pray over ourselves the following prayer. I see myself the way God sees me. I am highly favored of the Lord. I am crowned with glory and honor. I declare by faith I have preferential treatment. From this moment forward, my self-esteem and my self-image will rise to be in accordance with God's word. And this is my favorite part. I'll not be high-minded. I'll walk in humility. I know who I am in Christ, and I fully expect the treatment that is afforded to those who are highly favored. Now, this passage reminds me of the Princess Bride because I kind of want to say, humility, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. You see, this quote really shows the potential problem with this, this style of continual positive reinforcement. It is a strategy that can serve our human pride. And pride will puff you up, but the Spirit of God can fill you up. You see, it is wrong to think that you are worthless, broken, unlovable, and shameful. But it is just as wrong to think that you are perfect, amazing, flawless, and honorable. Because if you were those things, you would not need God. Our human pride wants to be showered with unending praise, but the only one who is deserving of unending praise is the God who made us. And so we need to recognize that these kinds of positive affirmations are only a temporary fix to our insecurities. Because when we operate in this way, we are admitting that the things we are insecure about 
our appearance, our finances, our work, what others think of us. We are admitting that those things define who we are. We are affirming good things about our appearance and our accomplishments and our abilities, and we are trying to build our self-image on our status as good men and good women, as good Jews or good Greeks. And Paul tells us this is wrong. He says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your identity isn't found in these things. Not in what you look like, not in what others think of you, your successes, failures, blessings, or trials. Because your identity isn't found in you, it is found in Christ. If you want to find out who you are, stop looking in the mirror and start looking to Christ. Because in him is where you will find your true identity. Here, let me, let me put it another way. Okay. So, in his letter to the Corinthians... Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. Each one of us is a jar filled with treasure, and we spend our days worrying about what the jar looks like. You see, there's a word for what we are doing here when we respond with this positive affirmation. We are boasting. When you hear someone say, I am awesome, or I am beautiful, or I have victory, they are boasting. And scripture tells us that when we boast, we are to boast in the Lord. And so when we have doubts, or when people question our value, or when we are unsure, we can have confidence that that is not who we are, and we can use that as an opportunity to boast in our in God. We can remind ourselves that God is the God whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. We can remind ourselves that God is the one who sent his son for us when we were yet sinners. We can declare that God is the God who by his power raised Christ from the dead. We can tell others that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the healer of afflictions. He is the ever-present help in times of trouble. He is the good shepherd, the bread of life, the living God, the savior of the world. We have so many ways that we can boast in God. And so right now, I want you to get some practice boasting in God. Okay? So, uh, you know, we often introduce ourselves to one another. So I'm going to ask you to spend the next 60 seconds... Turn to one person or maybe a couple of people around you. I want you to introduce yourself, say who you are, and I want you to boast in the Lord. Brag on him. Talk about his goodness. Uh, now, if you're nervous about that, I've given you a few. Oh, they're, they're going to be up here in a second. Let's go forward. Oh, well, okay. Well, I gave you a few that I said. Let's, okay, here we go. Now they're going to come up. While you're there, there'll be some of these that'll come up, some things that you can use. You can use the things that are up on the screen. You can use your own words. Uh, you know, talk about your own experiences, but I want you to just turn to somebody else, introduce yourself, and spend just a moment boasting in the Lord. And you should feel free to stand up and move around if you want to.
more seconds. sad that we get so out of practice at this. We just don't do it very much. We may spend time in prayer thanking God, but we don't spend as much time boasting in God. And so I'm going to encourage you to practice this more in your prayer time, in your quiet time. If you don't have one of those for yourself, we have a prayer time at PT. As long as you're willing to wake up at six o'clock in the morning, you can come here. You can, you can boast in the Lord in your prayer and also to other people. And you know, you don't just have to do that at church. You could do that with other people that you meet. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. Boast in the Lord, because that is where our true identity can be found. And so knowing our identity can help us to combat insecurity, but it's also crucial for intimacy. Indeed, as humans, intimacy, the desire to be fully known, is one of our deepest, deepest desires. And how in the world could you expect someone to know you fully if you yourself don't know who you are? And so when you lose touch with your identity, you can often feel isolated, cut off, waiting for someone to notice you, someone to see you, someone to be with you, someone to help you. And Paul addresses exactly this situation in his letter to the Galatians. You see, we've established that our true identity is in God. But you could still have the question, well, but what is that identity? It's somewhere in God, but God's kind of a nonspecific concept, pretty big. Where in God exactly is my identity? And the answer to that question is one of the greatest revelations of the New Testament. You see, the New Testament reveals to us a new name for God. The Old Testament introduced numerous names for God from Yahweh, I am, to El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, to Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, to Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. All told, the Old Testament has over 17 names and titles for God, and they're used collectively over 6,000 times. But then, when Jesus came, he taught his disciples a new name for God. Does anybody know what that new name is? I'll give you a hint. It's in the passage we just read in Galatians. Abba, Father. See, we're so familiar with that name for God. I mean, we just sang the song, Our Father. It's the way that we start out the Lord's Prayer, something that probably many of us have prayed dozens of times. It occurs hundreds of times in the New Testament. And so you might not have noticed that while it appears a lot in the New Testament... In the over 6,000 references to God in the Old Testament, 6,000, there is only one passage where God is referred to, the, to as our Father. The other 5,999 times he is referred to as something else. And the one time he is referred to as, a, as our Father, it is a prophet who is talking about the coming of the Messiah who would call God our Father. You see, the Jews at that time simply did not refer to God as Father. 
The Jews thought of God as a king, indeed the king of kings. He was holy, he was honorable, he was glorious, he was omnipotent, he shaped history. And then along comes Jesus calling that God Father. And indeed, Jesus didn't just use the word Father, Ab. He uses the word Abba, which was what little Jewish children called their dads. You could translate it just as easily as Daddy or Papa. It was a shockingly familiar and intimate term for God. And not only does he call God his father, he says that we too, every one of us, can call God our father. This is what Paul is referring to when he says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He is saying, you have learned a new name for God. And in that name, you can find your identity. Because if we are, if God is our father, then we will find our true identity as his children. You see, the word that is translated throughout this passage as son is the word weos. Weos does not specifically relate to the gender of the child. So depending on context, weos can sometimes be child and sometimes son. Here it's translated as son. But weos speaks to the relational aspect, the intimacy between a child and a parent. Weos had a special relationship with their parents. They were known by their parents, they were treasured by their parents, and they carried the family name. And likewise for us, when we accept Christ, we become God's child, his weos. We inherit that intimate relationship with our Abba. And as a child of God... Your father is always with you. He is the treasure that you have in that jar of clay. He is the reason that you can always boast. When other people let you down, when you feel isolated, abandoned, alone, you can know. You can know that you are never alone. Because your father is with you in prayer, in song, in words, in actions. And as the song says, he is a good Good father. Now, some of you may not have had the experience of growing up with a good father. Maybe dad wasn't around. Maybe dad was one of the people who made you feel like you would never measure up. But if that is you, then I have good news. Because that relationship does not define who you are. The relationship that defines who you are is your relationship with your Abba, Father. He is here right now and he is waiting for us to call out to him. When we struggle with insecurity and feeling unworthy, we can know that we are God's loved and treasured children. When we need something to hold on to in the midst of doubt and failure, we can hold firm to our identity as his weos. But sometimes it can be difficult to get past all of the external markers of our identity, past Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. And so I want to share a personal story about that. So as many of you know, uh, for a couple of years, I was part of the worship team here at PT. And I didn't join the worship team because I secretly have always dreamed of being a gospel recording artist. I didn't join the worship team because I am secretly a wonderful improvisational jazz musician. Because you see, and I've shared this before, but 
I'm white. I grew up in Indiana. I like white people things. I like rock and roll and hummus. I like the San Francisco Bay Area and organic foods. I like musical comedies. I like the Toyota Prius. I am white. I mean, we're talking Wonder Bread here. I joined the worship team because God told me he had some things that he wanted me to work on in terms of worshiping him. And being on the worship team is hard work. I mean, seriously, if you don't know, the, the members of the worship team put in a ton of effort to make sure that our worship experience is the best that it can be. And so for me, not being a very experienced musician, it was hard for me on the worship team. It was hard for me to... Uh, you know, learn my part, hard for me to blend different musical styles, hard for me to be good at my craft. And for me, I'm someone who loves being excellent at things. And so doing something every week that I did not excel at was hard. And I have to confess that when things were particularly hard, one of the thoughts that crept into my head was, it's because I'm white. It wasn't because anybody on the worship team said anything to me. It wasn't because they made me feel unwelcome or different. But when things were hard, a little part of me would think it was because I was white. And, you know, I would think things like, well, you know, we white people, we don't improvise music. We don't lead songs that way. It's not, wait for it, who I am. See, because part of me wanted to be a white man first and a child of God second. And ultimately, that made me feel alone. It separated me from the other members of the worship team. It separated me from the God we were trying to worship. And I had to relearn my identity. That I am a child of God. And that even though sometimes I don't get all the notes right, he still wants to hear me sing the song. You see, our intimacy with the Father ultimately changes who we are. We are his weos, his children. It's not enough for us to know this in our heads. It's something we must experience in our lives. And so that is why I encourage as many of you as are able to join a small group. See, small groups are groups of regular PT attenders who get together um, and, uh, and, and uh, what do we get? Yeah, so they get together, uh, yes. And one purpose of the small group, I lost my place. I'm like, what is it next? Yes. And one purpose of the small group is to build connections with other members of the community. What Bishop calls your horizontal relationships. But small groups also build your vertical relationship with God through other believers caring for you, through encouraging one another in faith, you develop greater intimacy with your father. Small groups are a wonderful example of how when you are in Christ, you are never, never alone. Amen.
But there is even more about our relationship with our father. You see, in changing our identity and calling us his children, God not only changes who we are, he changes the impact we can have. He changes our purpose, our direction. And to understand that direction, I need some help from the audience. And remember, this is not, there's no scary demonstrations here. I just need some help. But I'm not going to take volunteers. I'm taking voluntolds. Okay? So, Artie, I need you. Rosa, I need you. Come up, come up, come up, come up. See, see, usted. <laughs> Peter, I need you. Bernadette, Bernadette, I need you. And let's see, who else do I want? <laughs> oh, yeah, I need Roy. I need Roy. I definitely need Roy. Come on. Uh, all right, I think this is good enough. This is good. All right. So here we have Rosa. Hola, Rosa. Bien, he's dead. Here we have Bernadette. Bonjour. Here we have Artie. <laughs> Here's Peter, and here's Roy. Okay, so now, what if I told you that we were all siblings, brothers and sisters, that we all had the same father? What would you think? No, no, you wouldn't think that. <laughs> you would think I was joking, because we don't look anything alike. We have different ethnicities, we speak different languages, we have very different ages. So it doesn't really seem possible that we could have the same father. But what if I told you that we were all adopted? That we all came from different backgrounds, different places, but we were all adopted by the same father. A father who knew us deeply and loved us deeply. I bet you would want to get to know that father. Amen? Amen. All right. Hold on just a second. So the, I'm, I'm instituting a new rule. Bishop has the, you know, you get a dollar if you're a volunteer rule. <laughs> I don't have that many dollars, and I think we should set a rule that if you're over 18, you don't get a dollar for volunteering. <laughs> so if you're, if you're under 18, I have a dollar for you. Volunteers, you may be seated now. Thank you. <laughs> so that, because that is the truth for all of us. We are all adopted. We were out on our own. We were lost. We were unwanted. And God adopted us. Paul says it in the passage. He says, God sent forth his son so that we might re receive adoption as weos. You see, the Jews in Galatia had forgotten this. They thought that they were God's natural children and that only the Gentiles needed to be adopted. And by that adoption, we receive a new identity. We are part of a new family. We receive a new name, a new future. As Paul says later in his, his letter to the Galatians, in this adoption, we become a new creation, all because of our relationship with the Father. 
And this process of adoption gives us a special purpose, a special direction, a special mission as part of God's family. Paul closes out the passage saying this, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because you see, there are two words here that Paul uses to describe our position. He describes us as sons and heirs. Sons speaks to our present condition. Heirs speaks to our future condition. Because an heir is naturally awaiting an inheritance that has not come yet. You see, this is a constant tension throughout the New Testament. Our status as children of God is something that we are, and at the same time, something that we are not yet. We have already achieved and obtained adoption as children, but we are awaiting our full inheritance. We do not have it yet, but the writer of Revelation gives us a glimpse of it when he writes... After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with one loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. One day, a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will stand before the throne of God and bring him glory. You see, God doesn't want to wipe out your culture, your heritage, your ethnicity. When Paul says that there is in Christ no Jew or Greek, male or female, he isn't saying that those characteristics aren't important to God. They are profoundly important to God. But God needs to be more important to you than those characteristics. So that those characteristics can find fulfillment in worshiping the Father. And I must confess that I don't always like this revelation inheritance. I would prefer an inheritance that had something to do with my career or my education or my family or a vacation to Hawaii. And so sometimes it is good to have encouragement in this direction. And so I want to tell you a story about the Fuentes family. I think I have a picture. There we go. That's the Fuentes family. Uh, Jason and Engie are the mom and dad and their four lovely children. Uh, and Jason and Engie felt for many years a desire to see this revelation vision of every nation and every tribe worshiping God. They wanted to see that lived out. And they were, lived in Rhode Island, and they got an opportunity to move to Indonesia. And our church uh, is one of many churches that has been supporting the work they've been doing there. Uh, and just about a week ago, we got uh, a really nice video update with, from them, which, if the Holy Spirit is willing, will play in just a minute. This is the Puentes family in Indonesia. Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. 
everybody. We're the Fuentes family serving in Indonesia, the fourth largest nation in the world, the most Muslim populated nation. We're so happy that God has called us to minister here. We've been living in Indonesia for two years. Currently, we are pastoring at a local international church where there's over 300 people, mostly all Indonesians. We love it because we have uh, influence in the city. We are in the local town halls. We are in the school systems. We're reaching children. We're reaching the adults. And we're so glad for those types of ministry. Also, we need to get out into the villages where they're unreached and unengaged. So we're going out there consistently every month. We're sharing the love of Christ. We're seeing healings, which talks about who Christ is. And then at the end of the day, they want to follow him and they serve him as Lord. Recently, we have been able to do a large outdoor crusade. 9,000 people showed up. 2,000 responded to the altar call. And 700 people that same night got water baptized. We recently started a discipleship training school where we're raising local leaders to now multiply the work that God wants to do in Indonesia. Next year, pray for us. We're going to plant our first Indonesian-speaking church, and we're so excited what God is doing. And because of you, your prayers, and of your finances, this makes the work possible here in Indonesia with our family. Thank you. Keep giving because you have an eternal impact. God bless you. Amen. All right, well, I, I need to dismiss the children and the Sunday school workers now. We have a few more minutes, but uh, I don't want to keep you here longer. I really wanted to get to that video, though. So I think we can give God a little bit more praise for that. Because, you see, when I see people like the Fuentes family, I get inspired. And I realize that sometimes, maybe all the time, I settle for too little impact in my life. It's not that God wants us all to be missionaries. As Jason said, it takes missionaries, it takes prayer warriors, it takes people who support the work financially. We don't all have to be missionaries, but we do all need to be on mission. Because whether the part we have to play is big or small, we all have a role to play in bringing God's kingdom to earth. So you can support a missionary, you can sponsor a child through World Vision, you can pray for unreached people who have never heard the gospel, you can post your morning devotional to Facebook, you can participate in PT's Day of Service, which is coming up in just two weeks. Because together, in unity, we have a great commission, a great co-mission. That is a mission that we live out together as children of God. And when we lose our way, when we get distracted from that mission, God gives us the perfect compass for direction. He gives us Christ, the firstborn of all weos. As it says um, in the passage, for God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And when we look to Christ for direction, he replies, come, follow me. And he picks up his cross and he leads us up to Calvary. Not so that we can be crucified, but so that we can see the price of our inheritance. So that we 
might join with Paul in saying, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Our redemption is worth that much to God because our impact can be that great. We know our identity as adopted children of God, and when we do, we are able to show the world the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, the love that surpasses human understanding. And may we never, never, never settle for more than that.